Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. It is an honor to be with you, particularly on Ash Wednesday. Um, as you've heard, if you've read uh, our resources online, if you've heard the last few weeks at the church, this is the season that is the 40 days prepares us for our Lord's resurrection on Easter Day. We begin now uh, and we'll end on Holy Saturday. And Lent is a season that's marked by self-reflection. It's marked by repentance and it's marked by fasting. It's the season that reminds us of our own sinfulness and of our need for a Savior. And because of that, it's a somber season. It's a penitential season, and it's largely an uncomfortable season. I think it's made more uncomfortable because Lent is also an honest season. This is a season for truth-telling. As Christians, obviously, we should be honest all the time, but the church in its wisdom has set aside this particular season to tell three very important truths. Three truths that are necessary to properly approach the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Easter. First, in Lent, we tell the truth about ourselves. We tell the truth that we are broken and that we are dirty. The truth that we're sinners. And not only are we sinners, but we are sinful to our very core by our very nature as descendants of the first Adam. But we also tell the truth about God and his character. We tell the truth that God is righteous, that he abhors evil, and that he despises the very sin that rules in our lives. And because of his great righteousness, he cannot leave sin unpunished. And because of our sinful nature, we are separated from God. This is uncomfortable to hear. We don't like to talk about this. Yet in Lent, we tell a third truth, and that's the truth about God's love and his mercy and his grace. We recognize that God, despite our own sin, desires to be with us that he loves us so deeply that he made a way for us to return to him, a way to have our relationship with him set right. He gave us a way to return home, and that, of course, is by forgiving our sins through the death and resurrection of his own son on Easter. So yes, it's a penitential season. It's an uncomfortable season, but more than that, Lent is a season of grace. It's God's grace in our lives that frees us from the fear of his wrath, and it allows us to be completely truthful with ourselves about ourselves. And in doing so, we take a first step back towards our relationship with God. As the great reformer Martin Luther reminds us, the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. So in this season, beginning with Ash Wednesday, this is our first step on our way back home, on our way back to right relationship with God. Pray with me, and then we will dive into one of our readings. Lord God, we long to return to you. We long to be home, to be in your presence, for you to be our God and for us to be your people. As we enter into Lent, may we keep our eyes on you as you draw us back to yourself. Amen. So if this is the season that we return home, the question then is how do we get there and what exactly do Ash Wednesday and Lent have to do with it? So if you have your Bibles or if there's one in the back of the seat, turn to Joel 2. And here we find Israel in a common place, if you're familiar with your Old Testament. Um, Israel has sinned against God. They're in rebellion. 
uh, and judgment is at the doorstep. Now, Joel in this passage doesn't tell us exactly what they've done. Um, We're given no indication as to what their sin is, but his description through this passage makes it clear that whatever it is, it's severe. In verse 1, Joel calls Israel to blow the trumpet in Zion. This trumpet is a war horn. This was blown in times of war when the enemy was coming. They were on the horizon. So when he says blow the trumpet, he's saying man the walls, prepare to defend yourselves. The enemy is here. Take up the battlements. Then Joel proceeds to tell them to tremble because this giant swarm of locusts, like an army, a swarm like they've never seen, is coming to bring darkness and bring destruction. The ensuing verses, uh, 3 through 11, unfortunately aren't in our reading, but they paint a pretty grim picture for Israel. The swarm is devouring the countryside as it goes. It turns lush and prosperous land into waste. Not even the mountains are able to disrupt it. The other nations around are trembling at its approach, and it will not be deterred. It's making the very earth shake. It's so big that it's blotting out the sun. And this is chilling. This is a chilling warning of what is coming. But I think the greater cause for concern is that it's God himself that is leading this swarm. And this is an essential point for us this morning. Joel has framed this entire calamity that's coming as the day of the Lord. The Lord is doing this. It is God at the front of this army. It is his judgment on the sinful nations. But the interesting thing is that for Israel, the day of the Lord was understood to be a day of triumph. This is when God himself was going to intervene into the lives of Israel. He would judge and punish the wicked nations that oppressed Israel, and he would give Israel reward of great blessings. But Joel is taking the narrative, and he's altering it in a significant way. He's reminding the people the Lord is most certainly coming to judge, but he's coming to judge Israel for her wickedness. And so here we encounter those first two truths of Lent. First, we see that the people of God are not as righteous as they thought. Instead, they're just as sinful as the nations they thought God was coming to punish in the first place. And number two, their sin will be punished. So this morning, or this afternoon rather, I hope that we see ourselves in the people of Israel in Joel 2. There's a reason that this passage is part of the lectionary for Ash Wednesday. This passage should serve as a mirror for each of us. Like Israel, we are not as righteous as we think. We are indeed sinners, again, sinners to our core. And like Israel, we turn a blind eye to our own sin while we long for the judgment of our enemies. So here, Joel is pulling the wool back from our eyes. He's reminding us that God is coming to judge, but we are not safe from his judgment. In fact, we are the target of his judgment. The day of the Lord is bearing down, but it's bearing down on us. And here, I think we do well to remember uh, the Apostle Paul. In Romans 3, he has this litany, and he writes, Are we any better? Not at all. He says, We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
I think this should give us pause. These are uncomfortable words to hear. These are uncomfortable truths about who you and I are, about our relation to God himself. But then you get some of the most beautiful words I think you'll read in the entire Bible. God says to Israel, yet even now. He says, yet even now, but wait, except even with destruction on the doorstep due to our great sin, God reminds his people the third truth of Lent, that God is a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of grace. He does not desire the death of sinners, but he desires that they would return back to him. In verse 12, God says through the prophet Joel, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So we'll spend the rest of our time here. I think these words drive home two very important points. And the first is that these words of God remind us that Israel and us, as a reflection of Israel, we are not where we belong. We are not where we were meant to be. The very fact that God is calling for a return means that we are not where we are supposed to be. We began in one place, but we've wandered. And this idea, I think, is woven into the very fabric of salvation history. If you remember, Israel in Genesis is God's covenant people. I'm sorry, Israel is God's covenant people. He chooses Israel as his own, as a people that are set apart, that are holy unto God. But you know the story, they rebel. They mar the relationship with God that God originally intended with them. So they're kept from the promised land and they're forced to wander. They're not where they're meant to be. But this idea goes back even further. It goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. If you remember, Adam and Eve were created before the fall. They were called good. God had a deep relationship with them. God walked in the cool of the day with them in the garden. He was their God, and they were his people. They began in right relationship, but then they rebelled, and they marred that relationship. And after they did this, they were expelled from the garden to the east of Eden. And they are not where they were meant to be. So that's the first thing. We are not where we were created to be. And the second thing from these two words of God is that the coming destruction, this swarm, the judgment, it is immediate, but it's not imminent. If they act quickly, Israel might yet meet God in his compassion and mercy and be saved. God is inviting them to do so, and he's inviting you and I to do the same. And don't miss this point. It's not Israel who's making the first move. Israel is not working themselves back to God of their own accord. Instead, it is God reaching out to Israel. He tells them the swarm is destroyed at good land, but a land like Eden still lies ahead if Israel will accept God's invitation to return to him. And the same is true for us if we will accept God's invitation and return to him. Because this has been God's plan all along. If you remember from a few months ago, we had a sermon series called The Time in Between. And we talked about how we're in the middle of things as they were and things as they will be. So today we find ourselves between two gardens. In the one garden, Eden, we've been expelled. But a new garden is coming, and this is what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. John has this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he hears God from his throne declare that this will be his dwelling. He will be with men, men will live with him, he will be their God, and they will be 
his people. And from his throne flows the river of life, and on each side of this river is the tree of life, and it's yielding this abundance of fruit. And if you're listening closely, you'll recognize that that's the way the garden is described in Genesis 2. This is how things are supposed to be. This is home. This is where we'll return if we accept this invitation God is giving to us. And the invitation itself is offered freely, but the point is that it requires something from you and I. So picking back up, in Joel, God requires Israel to fast. He requires us to fast. He requires us to weep, and he requires us to mourn. But he gives these requirements with a word of warning. In verse 13, God says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. This is a little bit of an arcane word that we don't say often, but to rend, it means to tear. So in ancient Israel, to rend a piece of clothing was a sign of grief. You would tear your clothing before you put on sackcloth and ashes in your mourning. So in this instance, in Ash Wednesday and into Lent, God would have us tear our clothes. He would have us fast. He would have us weep, and he would have us mourn. But to do so without a significant change in our heart is going to fall short. See, God's not calling for hollow ritual. He's calling for our hearts, broken and contrite, for hearts grieved by sin and longing to return to union with him. In other words, God is calling for these actions not to be a matter of performance, but of purpose. And in a few minutes, we'll put the rubber to the road. We'll move from theory to practice. Ashes are going to be imposed on your forehead. And this practice is borrowed from that idea of sackcloth and ashes in ancient Israel. So from today onwards through Lent, you're going to be called to fast. You'll be asked to give up some practices. And you'll be asked to add new practices of piety into your daily routine. But in doing so, remember to not merely rend your garments. Don't do these things simply because of tradition, or because it's what we do in Lent, or because it's an interesting, cool, ancient practice that our Anglican Church does. Likewise, don't do these things in an effort to earn God's approval or to prove your righteousness. Our gospel reading warns us of exactly this. Ashley read in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And he goes on, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, they have received the reward in full. See, the thing about Ash Wednesday and the thing about Lent is that these practices, the ashes, our fasts, these aren't for healing us, but they're for diagnosing. They're not for fixing our relationship with God, but they're showing us that our relationship with God is indeed broken. Like Joel 2, they're serving as a mirror to us. They're not showing us who we want to be or who we should be, but they're revealing our sickness. They're revealing our true, broken, and sinful selves. So when you leave here today, use them for their proper purpose. Use them to acknowledge your weaknesses. Use them to clearly observe your own temptations. And use them to recognize where you stand in relation to God. I think the ashes are particularly poignant for today. The ashes that will be imposed on your forehead are not the good and perfect dust of creation. It's not the dust from the Garden of Eden. It's not dust from before the fall. Instead, the ashes imposed on your forehead is the dust from the east of Eden. It's from where Adam and Eve were banished for their disobedience. 
It's the dust from the ground where they were cursed to toil. It's the dust of envy and betrayal. It's the dust under which Cain spilled the blood of Abel. And it's the dust Israel trod as they wandered, barred from entering the promised land. The dust for today is the dust that covered Jesus' feet when he entered Jerusalem. If you remember Palm Sunday, we cry, Hosanna in the highest, only to betray him. Days later, literally, the dust that Father Dan will use today is from the palm branches from last year, burnt. It's the dust from which the fig tree grows that Jesus curses because it bears no fruit. It's the dust under which our Savior's own blood and sweat fell when he was crucified. That is the dust that's going onto your forehead today. But don't be too mistaken, it is not a curse. The dust is a sign of the truth, and in that way, it's sacramental. It's a physical image of a spiritual reality. It's an image or a sign that we are broken and dirty. It's a sign that we're sinners, and not only are we sinners, but we are sinful by our very nature as descendants of the first Adam. It's a sign that God is righteous, that he abhors evil, that he despises the very sin that rules in our lives. That because of his great righteousness, sin cannot go unpunished. That because of our own sinful nature, we are dirty and separated from God. The ashes are also a sign that God, despite our sin, desires to be with us. They're a sign that he loves us deeply, that he made a way for us to return to him. A way to have our relationship with him set right. A way to return to where we belong. So when you receive your ashes, feel the weight of your sin and the pressure of Father Dan's thumb on your forehead. Recognize your utter need for a Savior as he smears the sign of a cross in the dust. And when you leave, take up your fasts. Ponder the weakness of your flesh when you sneak your piece of chocolate or you give in and you have your morning coffee. Look deeply into the distance between you and God when you cut short that hour of prayer time in the morning or when it dwindles to 30 minutes, or when you skip it entirely because something more important came up. In those moments, I ask you to remember God's invitation to return to him, to remember that there is another garden. In those moments when you fail, rend your hearts and prepare to return home. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.